right, so I've got uh, Jaden with us here today, and he works primarily with um, children with autism doing applied behavioral analysis. And this is a topic, uh, topic area that I know very little about, and Jaden knows a whole lot about. So, um, Jaden, would you kind of just start off with introducing yourself and maybe catching us up to speed on what got you interested in um, psychology and how you got into the ABA field? Yeah, and thank you for having me, Daniel. Um, so I've been working uh, in the field of ABA for about four, four and a half years now. Um, and I originally found myself in the field. I was doing my undergrad and um, just a classmate of mine was like, hey, I'm working um, in this company. We get to work uh, primarily with individuals with autism. I think it'd be a great opportunity for you. And so I started out working as a specialist one-on-one -on -one with clients and worked my way up in the field. But um, it wasn't it wasn't the career path that I had specifically planned out for myself. Um, I was doing a undergrad in psychology and there was a couple of different um, areas that I was interested in. I think at, at that point, so this was what, uh, five years ago or so, I was looking at the possibility of um, getting a marriage and family therapy license. But I was still unsure because mm. I was like, I knew if I finished up my undergrad, I went and got my master's, went and got my credentials, I'd be like a 24-year-old marriage and family therapist. Mm. And I mean, from, I'm sure I could say some appropriate, effective things, but um, I don't know that a lot of people want a 24-year-old giving them marriage advice necessarily. I was like more interested in um, doing something that I could feel confident in um, oh. at a personal level. And so when the opportunity to work with uh, kids um, in adolescents and adults as well, but um, primarily kids presented itself, I was really excited that I could come on that. And so I got to start working with kids one-on-one -on -one and I did that for about two years and then moved into a supervising role. Um, and so now I supervise, I think about 18, 19 clients right now. Um, and so, supervise them, work with their parents, and then also, uh, you know, train the team that are working with them specifically. So that's kind of what my daily, is my job in ABA. Okay. And what got you, what got you interested in, in psychology in undergrad? Why, why psychology? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it, it, part of it is, uh, I'm, I'm an identical twin and growing up, um, my twin brother, Jesse, his personality is very different from mine. Uh, you know, I, I'm much more of the introverted, introspective, you know, um, more emotional. And he's very much like, you know, the black and white, go, 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 make things happen. Um, and so our personalities are, are not entirely opposite, but, you know, we've, we've got our, each have our strengths. And um, I, I began sort of becoming fascinated with, how one of us would interact in an environment versus the other person. Like I remember discovering what, that I was an introvert and he was an extrovert and we were probably like 12, 13 or something like that. And beforehand it had been like, everything's the same. We're both going, playing with friends. And then we would go and it would be like five, six hours into us hanging out with friends or something. And I would just be exhausted mm -hmm. and he'd still be going, going, going. And then I was like, okay, we're different. You know, you 
different. And so it kind of piqued my interest because uh, we were, we were homeschooled growing up. So we really did have the same environment for almost the entirety of our um, childhood. Uh Our moms are teacher for the most part. We've got all the same friends. We played the same sports together. We just kind of did everything. And yet we're so different. The way we make decisions are so different. And so that got me interested in personality and how the individual interacts with their environment. And, um, and I think that kind of paired with uh, just a love for working with kids in general. That's been mm-hmm. something doing probably since I was 10. Um, so those sort of combined pushed me towards the social sciences. Um, I wasn't sure that psychology was necessarily the exact um, part of the social science field that I wanted to find myself in. I, my mom has a major in anthropology. Um, both my parents uh, grew up in other countries, one on a mission field, the other one in hippie communes. Um, but they, they're very much like people-centered in a lot of ways. And so I wasn't sure exactly. And as, as soon as I started taking a couple of psychology classes, like you know, Psych 1A, the, the Base 101, I don't know, six, seven years ago now, um, I, it just very much piqued my interest. And I was like, okay this makes sense to me. This is something I'm good at. This is something that I could find myself like completely nerding out on. And, and now I get a nerd out on it for a living. Yeah. Good. Cool. It, it reminds me, um, that's a very similar kind of introduction to psychology that I spoke with, uh, a a friend named Jeff uh, a few weeks ago. And he was saying that he comes from a big family and not one of him and his siblings are very much alike and they've all chosen different paths. And that's kind of what got him, his guild, his gears turning and what got him interested in psychology. Um, and you said, I wanted to ask, you said that all of that coupled with your kind of desire to want to work with children and you've had that desire since you were young yourself, maybe like 10 years old, I think you said. Do you, yeah. and how did that start to present itself at such a young age? Um, it was actually my little brother was born. Um, oh. so my little, uh, I've, I have three brothers, one that's older, my twin brother, and then a brother that's nine years younger than myself. Okay. And so being nine, 10 years old, um, you know, you're at an age developmentally where you can make more decisions. You can be a little bit more independent when you're 10 and such. And, um, I just loved the opportunity to hang out with this kid all the time, mm-hmm. his big brother. And from there, I found myself, um, you know, growing up in a Christian family, there's always opportunities to do childcare, like at mm-hmm. church or vacation Bible school, or, you know, just someone needs a babysitter. And, um, and I found that it was a great opportunity. And also, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this as well in like, your psychology classes, like sometimes it can be an imbalanced field as far as gender. Like I've experienced company. I'm the only male supervisor and probably there's four males out of like the 80 employees in our region, Uh Um, which maybe that's more, you know, Northern California. That's what's happening here. Um, But I found growing up, like there's not a lot of guys that work with kids. Uh, and the guys that do are super passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we don't need to get into why that's the case necessarily, but um, it, it presented an opportunity to work with, work with kids. And, um, you know, in the field that I find myself in now, 
um, the clients are primarily male. Um, so a lot more people are diagnosed with autism are male than female. Um, so I work with probably 90% uh, males. Okay. So from my childhood, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to have Jaden, the, the, the guy, come babysit our boys and such so that they're going to have a Nerf fight and this one. <laughs> you know, there was lots of opportunities to do that. And the more that I got those opportunities, um, the more I just fell in love with it. And you know, there's something simplistic um, when you get to work with a kid and, you know, even just like a, a babysitting thing. I'm not running treatment targets. I'm not dealing with behaviors necessarily. You're just hanging out, having a good time. Yeah. Um, still, like if you can get on their level, um, you can kind of see some amazing scenarios, interactions that, um, you know, us old grouchy adults don't necessarily elicit as often. Yeah. yeah, my my supervisor. So up until now, I, I worked for the past year in the on-campus psychological services center. And I didn't work with anyone below the ages of 18. And now the site that I'm starting at tomorrow, um, my supervisor there was telling us that if you can work with children, if you have that ability, um, that's a great, a great skill or a great asset because you work with the child and then the, the parents come in and you can work with the parents eventually. And, and I see there, I've seen a lot of people in my cohort. So a lot of them either don't want to work with kids whatsoever. Um, a lot of them, that's all they want to do is work with children. And then you have some, a few people kind of in between. Um, and for those people, especially the, for the people in between, and especially the ones who don't want to, but have to, they, they seem to find it uh, very difficult to understand how, like you said, get on the child's level and to be able to, um, if you are, if, you're, if it's not gonna be a Nerf fight, right? If you have to go in and do a, a diagnostic interview or something, um, how, how have you found outside of having your kind of natural ability and personality and the, everything that makes you know, a great, a great uh, professional, someone who will work with children, do you have any tips or have, what have you learned through experience of how to best meet the child in your living? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And that's something that I run into um, on a daily basis. And mm. Yeah, it's, it's more than just like a natural charisma or inclination or a desire to be with kids. There is a, a skill set that comes with it where uh, that's learned over time where you're basically, you know, I'm interacting with a kid and I need to do a preference assessment. I need to see what motivates them. And in ABA, we're very focused on reinforcement, on you know, the environment. So we can get into the nitty gritties of that. But the, the short and fast of it is if I want to have a dialogue with a kid, and I work with adolescents, I work with adults too, but a lot of times with like the junior hires, the high schoolers, they have zero desire to have a debrief about some behavior scenario or about something that's going on at school. Like, you know, they're teenagers, they're yeah. not that. But I've found if you can find something that they care about and you can express, you know, interest in that, uh -huh. oftentimes that's enough. And, but I think like, you know, it's, it's more than just sort of a pat them on the back, you know, sort of like, oh, that's nice. That's really cute. Like 
actually genuinely being interested. So I, I don't play a lot of video games in my personal time. Uh-huh. I have to play video games for work. <laughs> I, had, I had a client just a couple of months ago and he, um, it was a telehealth client. I haven't met him in person, but he wouldn't see anyone. He wouldn't meet with his doctors. He wouldn't, he was just completely, I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to talk to anyone. Hmm. So I was talking to his parents and I was, I just jumped on the case and we're providing parent training and support with that. But I was like, Hey, I, I would love to meet this kid. You know, it's my first day on the case. I'm like, I don't feel entirely comfortable giving or suggestions. I can give you something general that could be effective for most individuals with autism, but really I need to get to know the person. So I was like, can I talk to him? And they were like, he just won't get on a zoom link. It's like, okay, well, what is he into? And what came up was he loves Fortnite. And I was like, okay. It's like, I've never played Fortnite before, yeah. but I know that you can chat with people. So I was like, does he chat with people when he plays that game? He's like, oh, he's got a couple of friends. They chat, they play the thing. And I was like, great. Um, can I play Fortnite with him? <laughs> they were like, yeah, absolutely. So now every, uh, I think it's every week, every other week, um, I pull out my old Xbox <laughs> on a headset and I run a session by playing Fortnite with this wow. kid. And it's, and he's beginning to open up like this last week, he opened up about something that I don't know how else he would have gotten there. And it just, I think so often we kids are, you know, exhibiting rigidity where they're not willing to move. They're not willing to budge. And our response, you know, as parents, sometimes even as providers, is just, we're going to be rigid too. Mm. Well, you're going to put your foot down, I'm going to put my foot down even more, mm-hmm. so come to me. It's like, well, no, we're the professionals. We're the people that should be willing to be flexible. Mm. So if this kid won't talk to me on Zoom or on the phone, but they're going to talk to me over Fortnite chat, then I'm going to play Fortnite. And I'm going to, like, I have spent like hours, well, not hours, an amount of time trying to get good at Fortnite because I realized like, if I'm terrible, this kid doesn't, he's not, he's just going to be like, oh, you're the worst. I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. I was able to earn a little bit of respect and now we're building a mutual dialogue. So it's doing a preference assessment and then being willing to put in the legwork um, because I think kids see that. Kids see and they're, you know, you can have a kid that's, almost completely nonverbal and they're still attending to those things they'll still realize like you actually care if you're actually invested or if you're not so i think it's less about being super charismatic having all the right words and it's more about putting in the work Hmm. well that's um that's really cool that you were able to figure out a way in there like that that's uh that's that's really good that's a good example of of exactly like you said, um, meeting them where they're at. And I like what you said about us as the professionals and as the adults being the ones who we need to be flexible. And it's not, it's not who can be the most stubborn and win out on a competition of, of rigidity, right? So that's, 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 that's interesting. Can you, can you explain? So um, before I met you and before I met Erica, I had never heard about ABA or Applied Behavioral Analysis. Um, can you explain a little bit about what that is and, and 
Um, maybe like what the training's like for that when you first got into it, um, something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think most people um, with, you know, any level of collegiate experience or anything like that, or even just like hearing, you know, new parents have heard the terms reinforcement, punishment. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, so those things are, that's behaviorism. And so what we're doing is um, we're taking the ideas of behaviorism, even as far back as Skinner, and we're applying them. So it's applied behavioral analysis. So what that looks like um, is, you know, an individual is they have some skill deficits in certain areas. Um, they're exhibiting some maladaptive behaviors, whether it's aggression or self-injurious behaviors, you know, go, go down the list. Um, and so you're presented with those things and you analyze it and then you apply it. And so it's, it's interesting. And, and this is sort of why I began to fall in love with ABA is you're in it and you're observing the entire environment because Something interesting with behaviorism is um, it takes into account emotions and internal states, but it, if it's not measurable, if we can't measure, like if I see a client and I know that they're sad, but I can't write in my notes, my client was sad today. I can say they you know, were shedding X amount of tears that I could track for this duration, um, their shoulders were drooped, like I can observe what's going on externally. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a very different approach from other forms of psychology um, because it's really just what do we see in the environment? So this is happening, this door slams, then my client punches someone. It's like, okay, there was, some, there was something, there was an antecedent, there was a behavior, there was a consequence. And that's the, the ABCs of ABA that pretty much like anytime there's a behavior, we ask that question. What happened before the behavior? What was the behavior? And then what happened afterwards? So a lot of times I'll run that through with parents where, you know, their kid scream, you know, their kid wants something, they scream, and then they get it. And you're like, oh, okay. So they wanted something, and they screamed, and then you gave them that. You're reinforcing the behavior. Wow. Behavior is going to keep happening because they did something. And then you said, Hey, what you just did gets you what you want. Here you go. Mm -hmm. And interesting thing when I, you know, I work primarily with kids with autism is the social aspect where uh, for, for you and I, we're considering sort of what's socially appropriate. So, you know, if I wanted something from you, Daniel, screaming is probably not my best. <laughs> um, and I know that, but a kid with autism, they just know that this gets them what they want as mm. quickly as possible. So it doesn't matter if it's socially appropriate or not. Like wow. I've had, I've been punched, I've been kicked, I've been bitten, I've been all of these things. And because my client wants to get something and it's my job to come into this environment and I change the environment. I change how people respond to those behaviors and you shape them. So if a kid is used to every single time their sibling is in the room and they hit their sibling, their sibling leaves the room uh -huh. and their, their goal is I wanna be alone, 
then if that's getting reinforced any time. So then what I do is I come, I sit next to that kid and he hits me and I let him hit me. <laughs> and then he hits me again. And I, and I have no response because what I'm communicating to him is that is not an effective way to communicate that. And then I prompt him, did you want some space, please? And then, you know, whatever communication level is at, let's say he, he's completely capable or she's completely capable of communicating that functionally. And they say, can I have some space? And I'm like, absolutely. And then I'm out of there. Mm-hmm. And then I'm taking a behavior and I'm, and I'm shaping it and mm-hmm. teaching not just what not to do, but more importantly, what, what to do. And so ABA looks at everything's in these very kind of uh, discrete you know, we don't, we don't talk about emotions the way that someone would, you know, sitting down with, with someone more in, in, in your part of the field. Um, we acknowledge them. Like, if I walk into a session and I know my client's sad, well, I'm going to run session differently. I'm not going to just ignore the fact that they have emotions, but I'm also not going to build my, my treatment plan around their emotions. It's more about their actions. So it could be about coping skills, emotional regulation. Um, But that's where behaviorism kind of takes a a different step. And so even within the field of ABA, there's different, you know, sex. So the the main two are DTT or discrete trial training. And this is very much what you might've seen, you know, 20 years ago and such where you've got a kid at a table and it's like, point to orange square and then they don't do it full physical. You have them point to it and then you do it over and over and over again. It's it's a controlled environment where you're doing things over and over and over again. And so it's, it's an effective way to teach skills and kids can learn how to do things with just repetition, repetition, repetition. So that's kind of old school ABA and we still use it, but we incorporate it with naturalistic ABA. So, I would rather work with a kid in their home than bring them to a clinic because a clinic is not, is, it's not the same environment. Uh-huh. You know? So there, and I have to take into account their environment because at home, maybe they've got siblings, you know, mom, dad, dog, this, that, you know, all of those things. Well, they might be aggressive in that environment, but if I take them to the clinic, they're like, wow, there's all these new novel things. This is great. And I'm not going to see any behaviors. Mm. And so we primarily work in the home environment with our clients, um, sometimes in schools, but we also work, we help out with occupations, jobs, um, so on and so forth, depending on where the kid's at. So we do naturalistic ABA, um, primarily using DTT when we feel like it's appropriate. Yeah. I know that was, that was a lot of words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> remind me for sure to get back to the naturalistic ABA, okay? Yeah. Um, but before we get there, you, so you are familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy, correct? Love ACT. Okay. Is that something that you guys use in ABA? Because I know ACT is a kind of a behavioral therapy. Um, Is that something that they teach you or is that something that you studied on your own? How did you come into contact with ACT? Yeah, so um, I was fortunate enough when I kind of joined the field that the the BCBA, the 
board certified behavior analysis. Um, you know, that's our the high, highest level uh, supervision within you know, whatever company or tier you're in. Um, the the super the BCBA that I had, she was like just a nerd about ACT. Yeah. So this was not something that we were taught kind of getting the, the basic training of jumping into ABA. Uh-huh. Um, something that I very vigilantly pursued on my own time and then um, working with uh, this supervisor. So we were able to incorporate ACT into our programs. Um, that supervisor has since gone off to start her own ABA company, which is amazing. Okay. Uh, now I have another supervisor who's also a nerd about um, ACT. And so we get to spend time where we're just digging into it and, and seeing how we can use the Hexaflex to, to help our clients. Um, so I love, I use ACT in my daily life all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you mentioned you were talking about how uh, with ABA, it's more about behaviors and you're not so necessarily concerned with the emotions that are going on. And that before we even got to it, it reminded me of ACT because, and just like you said, use ACT in your daily life. So for those unfamiliar with ACT, um, one of the ideas is that you want to live in accordance with your values. And, and sometimes feelings, they can, um, they can the, the way that ACT explains it is they uh, feelings are always going to be there. Um, it's kind of like the sky. The sky is, uh, or the weather. The weather changes. It's going to rain some days. It's going to be sunny some days. Um, but no matter the weather, you want to live in accordance with your values. And, and so a personal example, like I was trying to get through a book and it came, the weekend came and I just wanted to read. And, but then I, I felt super tired and I kind of felt uh, maybe a little bit, maybe sad that day. And I just wanted to kind of just go and withdraw and go to sleep. Um, but then I kind of thought about it and I thought, well, when Monday comes and my busy week starts all over again, am I going to regret not finishing my book the way that I wanted to? Um, or am I going to regret uh, not taking a nap? And so that kind of helped me that, so that's kind of that reminds me of, you know, the emotions are there. They might be sad or they might be happy. They might be frustrated. Um, and maybe frustrated is a little bit different because that might give you a, a better indication of what's going on in the moment. But, um, but yeah, mainly look at where you're trying to get to. And does that make sense? Absolutely. And, okay. and I've always sort of looked at ACT as sort of uh, a marriage between psychology and behaviorism. Mm. and which is like I love psychology I love behaviorism and so if I can kind of do both at the same time um, it's really exciting and Mm. so ACT is something that I found really effective um, with individuals with autism because and Down syndrome as well Um, but a lot of times you know I'm working with an adolescent and they've maybe they've had services for a long time and they've just been prompted their whole lives Mm. people always telling them you gotta do this you gotta do this which is true of like any neurotypical kid like we go to school we get told what to do we come home mom dad they tell us you know that's pretty standard but it's it's even more so um with kids who are receiving you know additional therapies Uh 
speech or go down the list. Um, so if you've been prompted basically your entire life, kids with autism can develop prompt, um, they can become reliant on prompts, prompt dependent. Mm. And so a lot of times if you're asking them to do something difficult, there's a point you'll, you'll reach a, a breaking point, you know, which we call ratio strength, where the ratio between how much reinforcement they're receiving and how many demands are being placed, it pushes past it. And they're just like, I'm done. I'm not interested in this. And I'll find a lot of times, you know, kids hit, um, you know, 14, 15, 16, and they're like, I'm done with services. I have no, I'm, I'm done. And I try and catch it before we get to that point. Yeah, um, yeah. But I find, you know, with my kids that are in that range, I'm like, okay, it's time to bring act in. And, and I even like to do it earlier if possible. But because what that does is, like you're saying, it takes values. So a lot of times the value of, of the individuals I'm working with is independence because most of their life, they haven't had a lot of independence. Yeah. So if I can take, hey, when we're working on goals together, it's not me coming in telling you, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need this. I am coming aligned and partnering with your values. Mm. You want to be independent. In a couple of years, you want to move out, you want to do this, whatever it is they want. Um, let's see what we can do to get you there. Like I had another client who, he was 14 at the time, and we were t he didn't want to do a study group. He had zero desire to, which I get it. I don't like study groups. <laughs> there are a few of us who enjoy those. Um, so he didn't, he didn't want, he was like, I don't get it. I just want to do it alone. And so I changed the subject and then I came back and, and I, and we talked about values and he said he wanted to get a job so he could buy a car and like a very specific car. I was like, that's awesome. So we literally printed out a picture of that car and I put it up on the wall and I had some other pieces of paper. I was like, okay, that is our goal. Let's see how we can get you. Let's plan it out, how we can get you there. I was like, so what do we need to get a job? He was like, or what do we need to get a car? He's like, well, I need a job. I need some money. I was like, great. So we put job up there. I was like, what do you need to be able to get a job? And he was like, um, I need to be really, really good at math. I was like, okay, that's great. And he's incredible at math. So I'm like, you're already really good at math. So we'll put that up there. Great. Love it. Um, do you need to be able to talk to people? And he was like, well, what if I work in the tech industry? And then I don't, I was like, okay, that's a good point. Like <laughs> one of those kids that he's going to catch you on every little thing. Like, okay, maybe you don't talk to people in your job, but do you have to interview for a job? I was like, okay, you got there me there. You go. Yeah. Okay. So you have to learn. So we're going to put up there with math skills and everything else. I have to learn how to talk with people with have have people skills so that I can interview so that I can get a job. He's like, so what is a moment, what is an opportunity in your life right now to work on people skills? And then it was totally that, that aha moment. And he was like, he definitely cursed <laughs> at me because he was just like, dang it, Jaden. Like, you know, I see what you're doing now, but, but I was able to draw the line. It's like yeah. tomorrow when you go, and you work on this thing, you do this thing you don't want to do, it's difficult. It's not because I'm telling you to. It's not because your teacher or your parents are. This is actively getting you closer to that car that you want, which is mm. the end goal. And that's what I love about ACT is it can connect the dots for these kids. Mm. 
and you know you get into the other parts of the hexaflex committed action all these other amazing aspects and for any of you listening learn about act it's the best thing like i just it, i love it um because you you connect the dots and you say okay that's my goal and what can i do to get there yeah that was beautiful that was a great example and i think um i think that it's like you said you use it personally every day and uh, like we've talked a lot about uh in the last few episodes about how grad school can be so stressful and um almost debilitating really and a lot of times you really do have to come back to why am i doing this and how does and when you can when you can see the connected dots of how grad school aligns with your values and where you're heading and how it's going to get you there it really just um it really your buy in just kind of reinvigorates your buy in i think and so yeah that's a great a great thing that you can do um great way to apply act in your everyday life Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you think, do you know much about with applied behavioral analysis, do they use that much with children with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? Um, yes, um, but insurance kind of comes in. Okay. So it is harder for a kid um, with ADHD to be provided with um, ABA services, just through insurance. Okay. You know, they could get it privately, you know, paying out of pocket. Um, a lot of times what I see is someone will have a comorbid diagnosis. So they'll have one of the clients I work with currently, he very high functioning, um, is on the autism spectrum, um, but he also has um, ADHD. In our program, to be honest, most of the stuff we're working on is surrounded um, kind of his ADHD behaviors. Mm, okay. He's incredibly intelligent. You never know he was on the spectrum. Um, so those are the situations that I find most often. I mean, I get a lot of cases where it's like they have autism stamped on, you know, their their card or what, you know, however you want to say it. Yeah. Um, and I meet them, and I'm like, this kid doesn't have autism. Like, like there's other stuff that's going on, but like they they maybe technically meet the criteria, but really the stuff we're working on is like ADHD or even, you know, we have kids that are dealing with um, just trauma that they've experienced. And, and, you know, I, I had a kid as well that I worked with him for about a year it was one of the most interesting things. And um, we ended up discharging him and referring him out. And I found out about two years later that he was a sociopath. Uh -huh had sociopathic tendencies and that's not my field of expertise so, but it made a lot of sense because working mm. with we actually did some act assessments and the values that he had were just like wild ah, just interesting wild. i was just like oh, okay this kid is somewhere out this is not autism. <laughs> um so yeah we do work with kids um with that diagnosis um but oftentimes they they have autism or Down syndrome or something else going on. Okay, okay. And so, okay, so you mentioned the naturalistic environment. Yeah. So this is honestly something I'm still a little bit uh, fuzzy on is the, so we've had, we had an ethics class our first year. Um, and then working in the Psychological Services Center, they have uh, quite strict, I would say, guidelines so I know once you're into a private practice, you know, clients can give you a phone call if you allow it, or 
you might meet with your client in a park on one day and and go walk and talk through the park and as long as you you know uh, recorded appropriately uh, documented appropriately um, those are all still kind of boundaries I'm not 100% clear on and we're still going to be learning about and so when it comes to you guys working within the home and what what kind of maybe ethical implications do you see there I mean that this is something that it's every single day like every single day I am popping into a session and recently um what I what I've been running into with sort of just these bordering on dual relationships where you know hmm. we're coming into the home and we're professionals and our job is to provide a professional service to this individual uh-huh. but a lot of times parents come to see this person, this, you know, specialist that's working with um, their kid on a daily basis. Some of our kids receive 20 plus hours a week um, uh, with, you know, oftentimes it's one, maybe two individuals. And so they kind of become like family. Um, And so those, those ethical guidelines, like if you're not super vigilant, you know, and recently it's been, it's been the mask. So, you know, we work in the medical field, we are required to wear masks due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so even though, uh, you know, restrictions overall have lifted in, um, in California, at least where, where I'm located, um, we still need to wear masks to work, you know, just like mm-hmm. if we went to the hospital, they still need to wear masks to work. Um, and so I show up to sessions very frequently where everyone present is vaccinated, but we still need to wear masks and the specialist isn't wearing masks because they're, it's all good. It's like, this is my family. You know, these are my people. And it's always, it's, it's always a hard conversation that I, (laughs) with everyone involved. And I'm like, Nope, still got to wear a mask. Mm. Like, uh, but also it's like gifts, all of these different things find out that, you know, someone, uh, a mom is buying coffee for one of my specialists. Like, Mm. I'm like oh my gosh like and we go through so much training about this but it's it's really difficult because uh-huh. you are there every single day and parents just stop seeing you as a medical professional because you know if you're there 20 hours a week you're not only are you seeing them you know their life is on display but in a way your life is on display because yeah. you show up and if you have, you know, a sample size of 20 hours a week and you have a bad day, they know when you have a bad day. Mm. Like I had clients that well, back when I was a specialist that I'd show up and the mom is like, what's, what's going on, Gina? Like, <laughs> it's going to be fine. Let's talk. And it's like, things are okay. I had a rough day, but that's all right. Let's get back to your kid. <laughs> like, you have to be so vigilant about keeping those lines and you know that's kind of the more easier side of it the the more difficult side is um parents don't respect you a lot of times um and you know i will be providing a clinical recommendation about their kid and they don't you know i always have to think about i'm like would they talk to their doctor this way Mm. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't talk to this doctor this way, but we're there in the home environment and they just kind of bring you in. And so kind of those guidelines, they're not as strict. They're not as delineated. And so it's like, 
on our side of things, we have to be super, super vigilant. Um, but it definitely, more than just like keeping things ethical, it bleeds into the effectiveness of the program where parents aren't accepting clinical recommendations. They, you know, because they are seeing it this way or seeing it that way. So, um, I mean, frankly, it's very difficult. And I, it is something that I'm running into uh, constantly and try, and I have to learn and be so proactive about learning. Like just yesterday morning, I had a three hour call where I argued with a parent for three hours and I hate arguing. I'm not <laughs> a person. It's a learned skill. I've, I've, you know, I've, <laughs> yeah, um, my supervisor, she tells me all the time, she's like, Jaden, you need to be more mean. Like you just, you gotta be more mean. Okay. And, <laughs> And it's true because a lot of times if you just parents do whatever they want, they're the ones running the program. They're the ones dictating all the changes. Um, and sometimes parents are just trying to make it through the week. Some mm. they've got a lot of other considerations and I'm not trying to say that that's not important at all. I take that into account, but my goal is the, furthering the development of this kid. Yeah. Sometimes I have to request things that are really, really difficult for parents, but I have to say, Hey, if you want your kid to get here, this is what it's going to take. And they can still say no, they can absolutely say no. Um, but you have to have those hard questions. And so I found the more that you're vigilant in those small moments, you know, just in how you greet someone and how you talk to them and how much you let them tell you about their personal life, how much you tell them, like, those moments they lead to having um more effective conversations when you have to have those hard chats that makes a lot of sense they say one of the not they say research research shows that one of the um highest contributing factors to a good therapeutic outcome is the relationship between the therapist and the client and so yeah it makes a lot of sense that you if you have a good relationship, a good working relationship with the parents, um, I'm sure that when it comes time for you to be like, hey, this is what we need, they're going to be a lot more likely to be completely on board because they trust you, right? Exactly. Can you yeah. give me an example of, of maybe one of the more, what's a, how you mentioned a difficult situation where the parents have a lot of pushback. Can you give us an example of what kind of situation would result with a parent saying, no, I don't want to do that. Or uh, maybe a common example. Do you have one of those? I mean, I feel like I have half my caseload is these extremely difficult parents. And, and this is something that like, I love my job. I uh -huh. love working with these kids. I don't always love working with their parents. Yeah. Because parents have all their own stuff going on. And yeah. so, parents have their own priorities. And so I actually often will run act with parents, um, you know, because, or even if I'm not doing a direct assessment and sitting down running the curriculum with them, even just kind of an informal, um, you know, where are they at with this? What do they value? And it often boils down to their values for their kid are not my values for their kid. Mm. My values in almost every single situation is going to be independence. Mm -hmm. I want it to be independent within their environment. And that level of independence, it could be different kid to kid. If it's a higher functioning kid, 
maybe it's complete independence. If it's someone who's completely nonverbal and their life is going to look a little bit different, well, let's get them where we can get them and, yeah. and build language skills as best as we can and so on and so forth. Um, but a lot of times parents, their values, they're not going to be in line with yours. So I, I worked with a 26-year-old um, probably three or four years ago now. And um, when I started working with her, I mean, she did not have any of these normal daily skills. Like she didn't really do anything for herself. She mm. had um, people that came and did all of that for her. And within six months, I was able to change all of that because wow. I made access to all the things that she wanted contingent on doing these things. And it wasn't... And I was able to do it in a way where it wasn't just Jaden coming in being the bad guy and just <laughs> you know, super nanny's got to like lay down. All, it, wasn't, <laughs> oh, it was just I talk to this person, engage with what they're interested, what they're motivated by. And I was able to determine they want to be independent. They don't like that people do all this stuff for them. Hmm. Um, they, you know, so with more independence becomes more choice, more responsibility. And that was motivating for them. And so that was going really, really well. And I remember I'd worked on a budget plan um, with this individual for probably about three weeks, a month, maybe, where he laid out the budget. You know, it was great. It was all set. We we're going to go to Target. We we're excited. And then dad walks in and hands his daughter $100. And, you know, from the outside, you might be like, that's so generous. That's so nice. Awesome, dad. You're a good dad. But from my standpoint, I'm like, you just messed up a month of work. Uh. Because in now in this individual's mind, I don't have to budget because I'm just the dad to bring me hundred dollars, <laughs> you know. And and so, and we had those over and over and over again. And it's it's never a situation where, um, you know, I I have a disagreement with a the parent, then it's like, all right, I'm done. This is too difficult. Like this is months and months where we're trying to work with parents. We're trying to get on the same page. We're providing resources, providing trainings all of these things and you get to a point where you realize your value for your kid is for them to be happy, not for them to be independent. And I don't judge them for that. I hold no judgment. I completely understand. They love their kid. They want them to be happy. That's mm -hmm. their, priority. but that's not the goal of ABA. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we had to discharge. We, we stopped working with this individual because mm -hmm ethically we're not in line with their parents and she was conserved so her parents you know had even at 26 had um that say in her life and so you know that's one example but it, it boils down to their values is not the same as my values um mm. or even their kids values and um, we provide as much support as we can we try and compromise we try and work through this um but the most difficult moments of my job is when i realize a parent's values, desires, inclinations is actually the biggest barrier to progress for mm. this. Game. And what I've noticed is it's very, very hard to change that. Like from my standpoint, it's yeah. not really in my purview to make those changes because there's there's all always something else going on. Maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, fine, whatever. And and I can't provide that support to them. So the best I can do is say, hey, the best thing that you can do for your kid is probably get some help for yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where you come in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Man, that's saying something for to have to be working with someone on the spectrum and and they face all of these daily just obstacles and you're able to all of these just inherent obstacles and you're able to come in there and to work with them and to help them overcome all of these things and with all of that the biggest obstacle is a parent whose values do not align with independence yeah it's it's like I, I talk to a lot of people that are joining the field that want to become BCBAs. And mm-hmm. I say, there's going to be a while where you're just stoked. Like mm-hmm. you're so excited to work with these kids. And at one point you're going to hit a moment where you have to discharge a kid for a reason like this. Mm-hmm. And it'll break you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I um, I equate it, I mean, maybe this isn't the best comparison. One of my best friends is a nurse. And he talked to me about the first time one of his patients died. And it's just one of those moments within the field where you, you understand this is going to be part of your job. And it's, it sucks. It's really difficult. Um, but it's the reality, you know, because uh-huh. I can't ignore that. I can't ignore that within this kid's environment, the most adversive stimuli is their parent. Like, mm. I that's just the reality. That's like, and as I've worked and grown in this field, it takes less and less time. Like maybe it's a couple of days I work with a kid. And I'm like, Oh, it's, it's your mom. It's your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe there's, there's other things going along, other factors. There always is. Um, but those are the situations where, you know, I try and jump on them. Let's work with mom. Let's work with dad, grandma, whoever it is. Um, but sometimes you, you hit that point and it's not, it's, it's no longer ethical for us to do this because the person who, um, you know, is, has guardianship over this individual doesn't agree with it. And we're not here to babysit these kids. We're here to progress their development. And if your goal is not to progress their development towards independence, then we're at a crossroads. If you could, let's say for, all of those parents who you've come in contact with that didn't that that weren't that didn't have a buy-in to you furthering their child toward independence. If you could give your own version of an argument for why independence should be the highest goal, um, what would you say? I've never had someone ask me that question. That's that's <laughs> really good question because um because yeah that's that's what i'm passionate about that's what the end goal is and i mean if i'm talking to a parent and you know a lot a lot of times i'm fortunate enough that i have that conversation and they're they're locked that you know i'm thankfully i'm i'm, I'm talking about the few when i bring up these parents. Uh-huh. okay i have so many parents that like they're there and they like it astounds me how much they have changed their kids' lives for the better. So thankfully this is a minority that I'm talking about with these parents, but um, yeah, there is that, there is that difficulty. And it's hard when you're talking about values and me trying to convince someone of a different value. Mm. So much that comes along with that. And, Mm. you know, I often just second guess myself 
So I'll feel like I know that I know that I know that this is the right thing, but I don't know this person. Like, I don't know their whole history. And so that's what's really difficult for me to even feel comfortable saying, hey, your values should be different because there might be so many things going around. So I, even with these parents that are so frustrating, I hold no judgment for them because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know everything that's going on in my life. I don't know everything that's happened to them. Uh-huh. What I would say though, you know, again, not trying to say don't have these values for your kid, but maybe in addition to those, okay. you know, adding independence in as an additional value. So, you know, with those, those individuals, if your goal, your value is for your kid to be happy, I'm not going to say that shouldn't be a value. Let's bring independence to partner with that. And so argument would be less of an argument, but more just my observations for what's being beneficial for kids is, um, or just individuals in self is having agency in your own life. Hmm extremely reinforcing um if i can make a choice and that choice results in something that i want in reinforcement like that's so much more meaningful than my life just being dictated by the system and Mm. maybe this is partially a product of you know we were raised in an individualistic society in the united states things might be different i mean my dad grew up in africa my mom grew up in india their their perspectives on all of this are probably different than my own Mm. But nonetheless, just boiling it down to a, you know, just behaviorism in general, looking at these individuals, um, we naturally want to enact change, enact, um, you know, movement progress in our own life. And when you consider reinforcement, that's often one of the more reinforcing things is not actually someone handing you a thousand dollars, you working for that. Mm. I earned this. I was able to achieve this. The the emotion, the pride, the all you know, all of that that comes along with that. Um, I believe that that's part of what it is to be human, mm. and you know, that's my ideological belief. But again, coming back to from a behavioral standpoint, from what I've observed and everything is when someone's able to do something their self and receive a reinforcer that's significant. There's really something to that. And I think that it, it kind of, uh, the, the ball starts rolling when a kid or an individual, myself even, we're able to be more independent, more independent. I did that for myself. I did this for myself. It keeps rolling and you, you shoot for the stars. And, and I've it, you know, looked at my own life and found moments where I'm not as independent. And those have often been lows for me, which is not the goal in life as a whole, I don't believe is to be independent, like, to be human, to be independent, that's the goal. That's what we like, this is more in behavioral terms where it's, okay. I have agency in my own life. I'm enacting um, meaningful change. And, and so that's where, the, that's the emotional component that I think yeah. of the end all goal is like, is there to be that satisfaction, that agency? Um, so going about that conversation with parents is totally different, one parent to the next, because you know it, it really depends their own personal belief, their cultural beliefs, religious, you know, go down the line. And so talking to them kind of in their vernacular is huge, where it's what does that look like um, for kids specifically? Um, 
So I would never ha talk to them about this the way I just talked to you. Um, you know, I would more so, again, pair with their current values and try and bring independence alongside that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. There's, um, there's a quote. I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a quote about, um, they say, success cannot be, Process, success cannot be really, it, success must ensue from your actions. Mm -hmm. And the same with happiness, it's a, it's a result of, I think the way he said was surrendering yourself to something um, bigger than yourself or to a higher calling or a higher being or something like that. So I, I, I've often thought about that and how, how, cause it, you know, and, um, we, we hear, you know, the pursuit of happiness, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit. So, but I think that that's the pursuit of happiness is kind of a, a misleading, a misleading um, thought or principle because you, what you pursue is other things like maybe independence or maybe family or, you know, these other values that result in happiness. And, and maybe it's just, semantics there but no i i completely agree i think happiness is a byproduct mm. of all of these other things and yeah. um I, you know i look at anything that has resulted in happiness like a significant amount of happiness in my life they've all been really hard like mm. i don't know what it's like for you but family sometimes is really really hard mm. but it's significant sources of happiness my job it's really really hard i'm sure the same is for you in schooling um and what i've heard from the previous people that you've talked to uh the, the mental strain it's really hard but what i'm hoping for what i'm believing in 15 20 years from now is is reaping those rewards and so uh, i think happiness will be a byproduct but if my goal is just happiness then i should quit my job right now and uh, you know go do something else because <laughs> This is really hard, and most of the time I'm not happy, but I'm working towards that. Yeah. Well, Jade, I'm really glad that you found when you were when you were talking about psychology and what got you interested in and the curiosity and differences between people, even identical twins, um, the the interest in personality and behavior behavior, and then you able to take all of that and uh, apply it here with your with your job. That's, it's just so, it's so meaningful and to be able to do something that you love and to work with people that you love. Um, one of the, I've talked with a few people who, so you might've seen the talk I did with Pete. He is the veteran and working with the VA. And he said that, you know, he'd be driving toward the VA and you have to pass through this tunnel to get there. And he'd be smiling, just knowing that he's about to go into work to work with these veterans that he loves. And I don't know, that's how I imagine you, uh, Maybe you don't smile every day, you know, on your way to work. But um, that, those are the kind of people who make a positive and significant impact. And um, I have a friend who used to say, whose life am I going to change today? And I kind of I make fun of that sometimes and say it jokingly. But I think that you, what you're doing is a great thing and that you are changing a lot of people's lives. And, and I think it's really cool. And it's, it's been a 
very informative and uh, an honor to talk with you about all this. So I, I thank you for joining me and explaining uh, your side of things and your field. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It was, it was lovely to have this conversation.